Well, good evening, church. So good to be with you again. We are continuing in Second Peter this weekend. We're just going to finish off the chapter. So Second Peter chapter 1, 16 to 21. So go ahead, grab your Bibles and turn to Second Peter 1, 16. Um, I know that there is a lot going on in our church right now. And there's still to be more to be figured out. But the word of the Lord is clear, and it charges us to preach the word, in season and out of season. And we may be out of season, but the word must be preached. The word must be preached to ensure that the, in the best of times we are not filled with pride, and in the worst of times we're not filled with hatred or sin. It must be preached so that we are reminded that God is always and completely in control of every situation. We are to preach the word faithfully so that we can come under its teaching and not come under the opinion of man. The word of God instructs us to love one another, to walk in the spirit, to trust in the Lord in the good days and in the hard days. And so here we are, needing the word. And by God's divine providence, this passage for this weekend is on the importance of the word of God. That it's what we need. It's what we need to pay attention to. We need it. We need it for our own walk. We need it in our own souls. We need it in our church. But we must understand why we need it. And Peter here in this text lays out for us the reason why we need to believe the Bible. Let us read our passage today. Would you stand with me as we read the word of God? And then we'll pray and we'll get to work. 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21 says this. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts." Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we need you. Lord, we need you. Holy Spirit, would you help us? Lord, you've given us your word that we may know who you are, that we may be instructed in how to live, that we may know the mission that we are to be on and what we are to proclaim. God, would you allow us to obey the word of God? Lord, imprint it on our hearts. Convince us of its superiority over all other works of literature. Lord, this is your holy word. It's what we base our life on. We trust in you. 
Lord, bring healing where there's need of healing. Lord, restore what needs to be restored. Lord, spirit work, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So what's the most important question that a Christian needs to be able to answer? Maybe we would say, well, we need to be able to answer the question if someone asks us, you know, explain to me the gospel. Of course, that's a great thing to be able to walk someone through and explain. Or explain to me uh, this theological point or uh, what you believe about this or what you believe about church or what you do or what your faith requires of you. And I think those are all important things to answer. But the second you give your answer to that question... The next question to you will be, well, why do you believe that? Why do you believe the gospel? And our answer as Christians would be, well, the Bible tells me so. And then obviously the next question after that is, well, why do you believe the Bible is true? And so you could say then the most fundamental question that Christians need to be able to answer is, why do I believe the Bible? And the reality for us is that we must believe the Bible. Not just because it's in front of us right now, but because it's worth believing. Maybe it's coming from someone asking you questions about your faith, but maybe it's actually from within your own spirit. Questions about, what should I do when trouble comes? If you don't believe in the word of God, you won't run to it, you will run from it. If you don't believe that this is the divine word of God, you will not see the pages of this scripture as helpful to you in life. But if you know that these are the very words of God given to us to reveal who Christ is, to reveal how we should live, oh, these will be sweet to us. And so we must know for ourselves that the Bible is true and that it is believable. A pastor um, from the States, born in California, he ministered in Texas for a while. I think he's out in Africa at this point. I had the pleasure of meeting him at, at one time. His name is Vodi Bauckham, and uh, he's a preacher and an apologist. He put together this wonderful sentence explaining why he believes the Bible, and I think it's helpful for us as well, and it's all based on our text today. I'll just read you his statement. I think it's really, really well put together. He says this, I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. That is a wonderful, concise statement of why we should believe the Bible because it's a reliable collection of historical documents. We have in our hand a very reliable um, collection of historical documents. 66 books written over 1,500 years, 40 different authors, three different languages. Most of the authors never met one another, but throughout all of that history, this is continuous, concise, and all put together so well. In the New Testament alone, we have over 6,000, 6,000 manuscripts or parts of manuscripts for the New Testament. In terms of history of literature, it blows everything out of the water. 
When you look at the writings of Aristotle or, the, or other famous writers, they have nowhere near. And all of the manuscripts we have are within a few decades of the originals. Where other manuscripts and other books, it's thousands, hundreds, and sometimes over a thousand years. It's a reliable collection of historical documents. It was written in, by eyewitnesses who saw these things happen in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses, and we'll get to that. They claim that supernatural things happened, and so we should pay attention, and that specific prophecies were fulfilled. So there's two major things in our text today that relate to the reliability of the Bible. The first one is personal experience. Personal experience. You see, the personal experience of the apostles. And the second one is textual evidence. That there's prophecies that have been fulfilled in Scripture, and so we should take notice. Both of these things need to work together. We need to have both, and so these are our first two points for today, speaking about the personal experience of the apostles, and then the textual evidence of the Bible. I love in verse 19, it says, um, you will do well to pay attention, speaking of the prophetic word, and so each of our points is leading in with this, that we would do well to pay attention. Here's our first point. I will do well to pay attention to the experience of the apostles. The experience of the apostles. Peter is claiming that he believes the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus because he has experienced the Lord himself. We should take notice of that. We should pay attention to this. Look in verse 16. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses. He's saying, we saw this happen. We're not making things up, but there's three things here in, in this uh, few, first few verses that uh, we should pay attention to. And, and the first one here is speaking about the motive. The motive of the apostles. It says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. I mean, one objection to the apostles and to the Bible would be like, it was all just made up. It was fabricated. These people, the apostles, they they got together and they made up these stories so that we would believe them. But how could this possibly be true when we really think about it? And who could actually make this up? What benefit was it to the apostles? All of them but one were martyred for their faith. They had no advantage in this world from this message being true. The only thing they had to look forward to was the salvation that their faith granted them in the life after this. And we saw what happened to the apostles. Do you remember? Do you remember what happened right after Jesus died? They all scattered, right? They all scattered. They, 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 they were shocked. Um, Peter, just as Christ was about to die, he denied him three times. They were running scared for their lives. See, that's what happens when the person you're following falls away. The motive doesn't pass the test. Something changed for the apostles. Something changed. And Peter says that they were eyewitnesses to his majesty. See, because they were witnesses to the risen Lord, that they saw Jesus resurrect from the dead, they were filled with boldness and they became bold witnesses of the gospel. They had nothing to gain but to spread the truth of the gospel so that others could be saved. 
And not just them. You could say, well, they're still, why, maybe they, they want to make this up. But it wasn't just them who saw this happen. There were many witnesses. And, and Paul explains this in, in 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, you can flip over there if you like. 1 Corinthians uh, 15, uh, 3 to 6. He says, For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, fulfilled prophecy, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Verse 5, And that he appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, then to the twelve, okay, then he appeared, wait, what does he say? He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And most of them are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Paul here is saying, along with Peter, listen, we're eyewitnesses to this. We saw it happen, and not just us, 500 other people. And they're still alive. You should go ask them. You should go ask them. I mean, could you imagine having this kind of testimony and witness if you were in court? You could imagine right now if you went over to a local prison and you saw one of the inmates there and, and they have their alibi and their story, but they're like, oh, if only I could have someone uh, agree with my alibi. And, and you went up to them and you said, hey, what if we had 500 people that said they saw you not do the thing that you did, that you were somewhere else? They'd be like, well, that'd be great. I only need one person. 500, that would be plenty. You see, they're not trying to devise these myths for no reason. It only led to their own death. They're doing this. They were, they, they're proclaiming the, the glory and the coming of the Lord Jesus because they saw him. They saw him. We have historical eyewitnesses that have seen this. And, and the example here that Peter is speaking specifically about in verse 17 is the transfiguration, this, this story when... Peter, James, and Paul went up this mountain with Jesus, and Jesus was transfigured, and, and Moses and Elijah came down, and the glory of God was shining from Jesus' face. And Peter's saying, I saw this happen. They saw a glimpse of what was to come. They saw a glimpse, this, this idea of Jesus returning down. And at this point, there's all sorts of arguments. I've heard them all. I've heard, I've heard this one. Have you heard this one? There was a mass hallucination. Have you heard this? Everyone hallucinated, and this is what they saw. So 500 people were all high on some kind of something and experienced the exact same thing. And that, from that moment, it went on and changed their lives to witness about Christ. You know, We don't call that hallucination. Hallucination doesn't happen en masse. It's a singular experience in an individual, not a corporate event. Just think of the weight of that claim. Imagine, imagine that could be true, or imagine someone would make that argument today. If, someone, if 500 people came up to you and said, we saw this happen, you said, no, all of them, and my witness in court is that they all hallucinated. That's crazy. That's crazy. But it wasn't just what they saw, it's also what they heard as well. He says, we heard this. We, we heard this happen. While they were up on the mountain, a voice from the majestic glory from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Could you imagine being there and witnessing that? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. 
I mean, maybe you could say, you know, it was smoke and mirrors. The whole thing with his face and the transfiguration, they had some sort of, you know, magic trick going. But how in the world, in the first century, would you have a voice booming down from heaven that says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased? You can't set up this kind of magic show. And you say, well, it was just the three of them, Peter, James, and John, who were on this mountain. But this isn't the only time that God spoke from heaven Remember in Jesus' baptism at the end of Matthew 3, with many witnesses there, and Jesus is baptized, and the, the Spirit of God descends on him like a dove. And God speaks, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. They heard it. They heard it. There was many witnesses to this. This is their experience. And and when we see something in history where there's so many people pointing to the same thing and they're saying, listen, this happened, this is true, but it's not just true, it changes my life. We must pay attention. That That should perk our interest a little bit. All of these people are saying that something incredible is happening here. We should pay attention. We should take notice But that's not quite enough, is it? It's not quite enough. Just hearing someone say, this has happened and this has changed my life, you say, oh, okay, but also the word of God, the the Bible you're claiming, it also needs to be true. It also needs to be true. It's not just enough to have experience. I need evidence. I need evidence. Which leads us to the second thing we need to pay attention to. I will do well to pay attention to the prophecy fulfilled in the Bible. I will do well to pay attention to the prophecy fulfilled in the Bible. Listen, for me, like if I'm going to base my life on something, it needs to be true. It needs to be true. It needs to be the divine word of God. It, need, it needs to be perfect. I'm not going to base my life on the next self-help book that comes out from some author who changes his mind the next day and maybe they see a little bit of following for a week but it all tears apart and it's not life-changing. I'm not going to base my life on that. If I'm going to base my life on something, if I'm going to go after something, then I want it to be true. Prove it to me. Show it to me. You need the experience. You need the evidence. The Bible claims divine origin. It's not from man. Isn't this what it says in the text in verse 20? Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy came from the will of man. No prophecy comes from someone's own interpretation. So it's saying, it's claiming divine origin. That this is from God. That God put this together for us. We need to believe this. It's a slightly unfortunate translation that, where it says um, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation because it makes us think that they're interpreting the prophecy, but that's not actually what it's talking about. It's, it, what it's saying is the origin of the prophecy didn't come from someone's own interpretation. It comes from the will of God. So it's not like someone was standing around and thinking about the world and what might happen and then made a prophecy. No, God led them. It's not from their will, it's from God, not man. And God uses man. He carried them along, as it says in verse 21. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God, divine inspiration, divine authority, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It was the very will of God, and this means it's perfect. 
The language here, when it's talking about carried along by the Holy Spirit. So how was the Bible written? It's using nautical terms here, the carried along. So like a sailing, you can think of sailing. And so you can think of us, if all of us here, right, we, um, we all picked a boat, right? We would all probably pick different boats because we all have different personalities, we all have different likes, we all have different uh, ideas of what should be in a boat. Some might be wider, some might be longer, some might be taller, some might be bigger, smaller, all of these things. We'd all, different colors of boats for sure, different rudder system, okay. We all pick different boats. So what happens is all of us put up our sails. And this being carried along is like the wind coming in and moving the boats into a certain direction. The Holy Spirit is this wind carrying along these boats. And it's, they're all going to the direction he wants them to go in, but every boat might get there just a little bit differently because of the size of the boat and the, and the, the rudder system and, and, and the width of the boat and all of these things. So one boat cuts through the waves just like that. Another boat goes a little bit slower which means that there's the human personality within Scripture, that there's 40 different authors who, who have written Scripture, different genres over many different years, and writing in different styles, but all of them carried along by the same Holy Spirit leading them to the truth. This is what he's saying here. That these are the very words of God And he used men to get them out. Different men with different personalities. But all of them, all of these words are perfect. We're told to pay close attention to this. And of course we need personal testimony that catches our attention, makes us pursue the Bible, seems helpful for our lives. But the Bible itself must be on its own, reliable trustworthy, and a consistent document. And listen, it is. It does. And I don't need to defend it, actually. It'll defend itself. It's always, it's always come through. It has lasted the test of time. Many, many people have tried to disprove the Bible. In fact, there's been over 26,000 archaeological digs, and all of them only confirm the dates and the places and the names that are mentioned in Scripture. If someone came up with something that could disprove the Bible, trust me, you'd hear about it. But I don't need to defend the Bible. It will defend itself. I love this quote. It's often quoted. It's uh, Charles Spurgeon, and he said this idea in a few different ways. I'm paraphrasing, but he says this. Imagine imagine a man um, would stand in front of a fully grown lion, and he's seeking to defend the lion. Silly. What the man should do is just kind of step aside and let the lion out of its cage because the lion can defend itself. The word of God can defend itself. The gospel can defend itself. And so I'm not going to try to convince you by way of argument, but encourage you that we're to just pay attention to what's already written down. So let me stand aside and just allow scripture to defend itself. In my study, I I found that there's approximately 2,500 direct prophecies in Scripture. About 2,000 of them are completely fulfilled already. The other 500 are about things that are happening or future events yet to come. 
Here's one, for example. We can't go through all of them, but in Daniel 9, 25 and 26, this one I found just incredible. We see this prophecy 500 years before the time of Christ. And and Daniel gives these incredibly specific numbers about the time of things and that this one would come after so many years and, and that he would die. And then after that death, then the temple would fall. And of course, if you add these things up, if you look at the prophecy, he says that all of this will start when there's a decree from a king and sure enough, sure enough, King Artaxerxes makes a decree in history, well recorded. The number of years, depending on how you look at the text, either 483 or 490 years, right after that, what Daniel predicts, Jesus comes He dies, and then a few decades after that, the temple falls. Incredible. Incredible. 700 years before Jesus was born, Micah, in Micah 5.2, names the tiny village where the Messiah will be born, Bethlehem. 700 years before. Zechariah declared 400 years before Christ that he would be betrayed for the price of a slave, 30 pieces of silver. Isaiah, this is, this is incredible, this, this took place in the Old Testament as well as the prophecy happened in the Old Testament. Isaiah made a prophecy that this king would come and he would take over Babylon, he would subdue Egypt and that he would let the Jews return to their home and he said that this would happen soon. And not only did he just make this bold claim, he named the king by name. King Cyrus would come. Cyrus would come. The amazing thing about this is that the prophecy was 150 years before Cyrus was even born. Yet sure enough, Cyrus came and did all the things that Isaiah wrote. In Psalm 22, and this definitely is my favorite The psalm that Jesus quotes while he's on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22, and he, in Psalm 22 it says, For for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. Speaking of the people coming around him, they pierced my hands and feet. Exactly what happens to Jesus is written a thousand years before the time of Christ. I count all my bones. None of Jesus' bones were broken. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Exactly what happens to Christ. They, they, the guards cast lots for his clothing. All of this a thousand years before the time of Christ. And, and you would say, well, I don't really believe the Christ thing. But listen, this 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 prophecy in Psalm 22 speaking about and defining crucifixion so perfectly hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented. This wasn't even a way that they executed people yet. Amazing. We have this prophetic word more fully confirmed because we have seen the prophecies of the Old Testament come true in Jesus Christ. Well, we need the experience of the apostles. We need the, the Bible and the, the truthfulness of its prophecy. And, and lastly, we will do well to pay attention to the light found in the Bible. 
over in verse 19. It says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in, dark, in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. We have this prophetic word more fully confirmed which we will do well to pay attention. It's, it's, like, a, it's like a lamp in a dark place. We need to look to it. We need to look to it. I love that line. Do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. We need the word of God. We need it. We're desperate for it. And if, if we're caught by the experience of so many witnesses throughout history, if we're, if we're convinced of the prophecy being fulfilled, then we must run to the word of God. We need it like a dark place needs light. We need it because we live in a dark world. Our hearts are dark. The wisdom of the world is dark. The deeds of the world are dark. And so we need to pay attention to the word of God, which is light to us. And Jesus is the light of the world. It will guide us. It will protect us. It will give us courage and peace. It will give us rest in troubled times. We surely will do well if we pay attention to the word. The whole Bible, the whole history of God's people, 66 books written in three different languages over the course of 1,500 years, written by people that never met one another for the most part, naming specific places and times and dates with specific prophecies that have been filled. All of it, all of it, all of it for the sake that we could know Jesus Christ. That he would be revealed. That we could have confidence in the word of God so that we could believe the testimony of Jesus Christ. All of it pointing to him as the light of the word. God has preserved his word and accomplished it so that we can know Jesus today. In the the word we learn that Although God created us without sin and that it was very good, our first parents, Adam and Eve, decided to rebel against God and they sinned. But immediately, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, in Genesis 3, he makes a promise that someone will come and crush the head of our enemy. He makes this promise of hope right away that Jesus would come. He called Abraham in Genesis 12 and furthers that promise of hope. That through his lineage, all the families of the world would be blessed. Promising this ultimate peace that Christ would come through his line. Abraham, Isaac's son, his son Isaac, and then Isaac's son Jacob. And Jacob on his deathbed talking to his 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. In Genesis 49.10, the promise continues. More specific, getting more specific. He says to his son Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of all peoples. The prophetic word is getting more specific. He's talking about through Judah there will be a king, and he'll be a king forever. In the time of King David, a thousand years before Christ, who is part of the line of Judah, the line coming to Jesus, continuing, we see him looking forward to this one who would come. In Psalm 2, he will be begotten by God, and we should take refuge in him. In Psalm 23, he's a shepherd who restores the soul and leads us in paths of righteousness. In 51, he washes us clean with his blood, that we may be whiter than snow. 
In 91, the angels obey him and would come to his aid, but instead he bears the cup of God's wrath. He is a priest forever in Psalm 110, and he sits at the right hand of God, and his enemies are his footstool. Psalm 119, he is the word of God incarnate and the only lamp for our path. And this is written a thousand years before Christ comes. And then again in Isaiah, it's just amazing. Isaiah comes along 700 years before Christ and in chapter 7, he'll be born of a virgin. In chapter 9, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In chapter 11, he'll be a shoot from the stump of Jesse, which is David's line in, um, uh, coming from David. In 40, in his coming, the glory of the Lord is revealed to all flesh. We'll see it together. He goes on and he goes on and goes on. 53, he was despised and rejected by man. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet didn't open his mouth. He bore our grief and carried our sorrows, wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. He brought us peace, and by his stripes we are healed. We don't have time to go through all the prophetic word, but wow, it all is pointing to Jesus Christ who perfectly fulfills the prophecy concerning himself. And in John 5, 39, Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. All of it pointing to Jesus, that we may know Jesus. So what do we do? What do we do? What do we find out? We find out that we are all sinners. That's what we find out in the word of God. We're all sinners. We've fallen short of the glory of God, it says in Romans 3, 23. We haven't made the cut. We, we've sinned against God, and he's a holy God, and, and we can't be with him because of our sin, and there's nothing we can do about our sin. There's no sacrifice we can offer that will atone for our sin. The word of God tells us that sin leads to death, that because of our sin, we're going to die in separation from the glory of God. In Romans 5.12 it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. But in Romans 6.23 it starts to change for us. He tells us, yes, the wages of sin is death, but, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. All of this, the word of God pointing us to this truth That the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Praise God, there is hope. And even though I'm a sinner, Jesus can give me life. And I believe it because I know the word of God is true. But what must I do? What must I do? Great. I'm a sinner. I believe the word of God. I know that Jesus can give me life. He has fulfilled all the prophecy. What must I do? In Romans 10, 9 And 10 tells us. It says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For the heart, in the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And if you call on him, if you believe that Jesus has come and died for you, that he was risen from the dead, Romans 10.13 assures us, For anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You can bank your life on this. We need the word of God. This is the purpose of the word of God, to bring us to salvation, but the beauty of it is it doesn't end there for us. It doesn't end there. We, the word of God also instructs us on how we are to live. 
It instructs us on how we're to live with one another. That we should pay close attention. It'll be a light in a dark place for us. After all, 2 Timothy 3.16, another very important verse about the inspiration of Scripture, says that all Scripture is God-breathed. And since it is true, it's good for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so that all of us would be equipped and ready for every good work. It shows us the gospel. We're saved through the gospel. And now we're ready for every good work. It will be nourishment to our souls, according to his word, Psalm 119.25. In Psalm 119, 147, it says, The word will soothe our discouraged hearts. It says, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words we need the word of God. Psalm 27.1 says, about talking about that the word will help us when we are fearful. It says this, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? In John 17, 17, we see that the word of God is truth. Jesus speaking and praying to his Father in heaven. He says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. We need the word of God. The word instructs us on how we are to treat one another. When we live by the word of God, our lives will be more peaceful. We are to forgive one another. Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Why? For the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. We are to live our lives in a way that does not seek to promote self, but seeks to promote others. Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. While the world is telling us, live for number one, do it for yourself, Gain more things for you. The Bible tells us what will actually bring us joy and life. We are to live as godly examples to others. Titus 2.7 Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity and dignity. And there's so many, but I need to conclude with this. We are to love one another. We are to love one another. The word of God says that we will be known by our love. The world will know who we are as we love one another. John 13, 34 and 35 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And of course this famous verse which describes what our love for each other should look like. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 7 says that love is patient. And kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. This is who we are to be. As as people who believe in the word of God as the inspired truth from God himself. Who has revealed Jesus Christ to us in its pages. Has also instructed us how to live from the same very word. So the question for us is who will we be? Who will I be? 
Will we be a people who believe and live by the word of God? Trusting that God's words are best. Do you believe the word? I think we all must. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, your word is truth. Sanctify us, God, in your truth. Lord, help us, God. Help us love as you have loved us. Help us forgive as you have forgiven us. Lord, help us think the best and to care and to cry with one another and love one another and laugh with one another, Lord. Teach us, God. Heal our wounds. Protect us, Lord, from the work of the enemy. God, we need you. We're desperate for you, God. Answer our call. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.